Now the text this morning is John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. And um, I want to show this video, it's just about two, two and a half minute video, but it basically is the text uh, um, acted out. So if you guys can show the video. Let's pray. Father, this is your word, we ask you to illuminate it. Holy Spirit, we welcome you to search our hearts. Lord, that your word would find good soil within us and would bear good fruit. Father, I just pray that you would uh, enable me to uh, share the things that you've laid in my heart with clarity. And I pray that you would just bring us to a place of holy focus on Jesus. And that your name would be magnified and glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The title of my sermon this morning is this, What Does Jesus Teach His Disciples About True Worship? Because in this passage, we see that temple worship had become defiled. It had become a means of making money. And there are three sections here that I want to look at. Firstly, verses 13 through 17. And secondly, verses 18 through 22. And then lastly, 23 through 25. Answering this question. What does Jesus teach his disciples about true worship? In the first section, we see that Jesus went to the temple and he drove out those who were changing money and selling animals for sacrifice. And he overturned their tables and he said, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And so in this first section, Jesus moved in great power and authority, and they couldn't withstand him. He demonstrated that half-hearted religion has no place in his kingdom. And there are three important things to take note of in this first section. Firstly, they were making religion convenient and transactional. So what would happen was wealthy Jews would come from the surrounding cities, and they wouldn't bother to bring a sacrifice like the scriptures told them to. They would come and then they would exchange money because they couldn't use Roman money in the temple. And they would buy the sacrifices they needed. It was convenient. It was helpful. And it was half-hearted. Jesus said, don't make my father's house a house of trade. It should be a house of worship. But how often do we come to God in a transactional way and bargain or offer lip service and not true worship. The second thing to notice is that the trading was taking place in the Gentile outer court. So this outer court was the place where God intended for Gentiles, non-Jewish people to come and worship him. God's heart for his people, they would be a light to the Gentiles. God had always intended that right from the very beginning. That his chosen people were chosen to show God's glory in the nations. That God would be worshipped by all peoples in all places. True worshippers of God long for his glory to fill the earth because he is worthy. And even in this sign, Jesus was demonstrating his heart for the nations, for us, those that are non-Jewish, Gentile people. That these people were using religion conveniently and were not taking 
the hope that they had in Jehovah to the nations. Thirdly, we can notice in this section, God wants worshippers, not traders. Jesus' disciples noted that zeal for his father's house consumed him. This is a quote from Psalm 69 verse 9. Zeal for your house has consumed me. Jesus' zeal for his father's glory did indeed consume him, literally. In the great zeal that Jesus had to see his father glorified, it cost him his life. That Jesus was willing to pay the ultimate price and suffer and die so that the nations would know his father. Zeal for his father's house did indeed consume him. Campbell Morgan makes this note. The supreme iniquity to the heart of Jesus was that the Hebrew people were failing to function as God intended. His intention was always that they should bless all nations, but they had now come to that position when they thought only of themselves and the ease and comfort of their own worship, Gentiles. What did Gentiles matter? Certainly use their courts and desecrate them. Christ thus came and swept out the whole unholy traffic, the zeal of the house of God consuming him. Such was the sign. So what this teaches us about true worship is that God is seeking authentic worshippers. And I'd like us to ask ourselves a question before we move into the second part of this passage. Are we authentic worshippers of Jesus? Or are we transactional? We don't get what we want. Life doesn't turn out like we expect. And so we become disillusioned and discouraged. The Lord is seeking for true worshippers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. How many of us are not shining the light like we should be to those who don't know Jesus? Because we're just coming and making a convenient sacrifice. Not living compelling lives. Not living lives that have zeal for the Father's house. Zeal for his kingdom. Zeal for his glory. And honestly, as I prepared this sermon, I, I had to search my own heart. Wonder, God, are there things in my life that I'm just trading? I'm just making bargains with you. I'm just being convenient with my faith in the Lord. Or is zeal for you and your glory really consuming me? Or is zeal for my way, my ministry, my power, my authority, my prestige? And if I'm honest, a lot of times that's what I think about. I don't think about my father's glory. I think about how is this going to affect me? What impact is this on my life? And I realize that, you know, in my heart, in my heart, I've made religion convenient. And I asked the Lord God, would you come and clear out the mess? Clear out those things that are just not appropriate in your house. May God do that to each of us in the only way that he can, his loving, holy way. May God come 
and take up residency in us, in his temple. Let's look at the second section because it continues this theme, verses 18 through 22. The Jews asked him, they were angry, and they said, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. Now that word temple is very interesting to note because in the previous section, the word temple is the word hieron. It means the entire temple precinct. But here Jesus changes the use of the word. And he says, destroy this temple. He uses the word naus, which means the inner sanctuary. So Jesus was saying, destroy this temple. The inner sanctuary was where the Holy of Holies was. And he said to them, if you destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it up in three days? Look at verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. He was pointing towards the cross. He was saying, this is going to be the ultimate demonstration. The ultimate sign that validates this sign of me cleansing the temple is that I am the Lamb of God. I am the sacrificed Lamb who will be slain. And it says in 22, therefore, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. That's what God wants for us today. He wants for us to believe the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus had made a profound statement on the condition of their religion. And they knew it. And they realized it. And when they asked him for a validating sign, he pointed them to the cross. The cross is the ultimate demonstration, isn't it, of the love of God and God's hatred for sin. His mercy and his judgment. He was indeed the lamb slain for our sins. The Jewish authorities could sense there was an authority operating here that was way beyond anything they'd experienced before. They didn't realize that Jesus was himself the sign. Jesus was giving them a living visual lesson of their problem. Their worship was not authentic, but was convenient. But true love is never convenient. It always involves sacrifice, doesn't it? Always. I mean, get married and you'll realize that true love demands sacrifice. Follow Jesus and you realize that true love demands sacrifice. In fact, the definition of love is not this kind of Western idea where, where love can be anything and you can love anyone. But love, by biblical definition, is sacrifice. Self-giving love. But as it gives, it lives. And as it gives, it grows. Because it's God's love. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. And in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 through 17, it says this, Don't you know that you are God's temple? And Paul uses exactly the same word there that Jesus used. That you are God's holy of holies. That God wants to make you his dwelling place. This is so wonderful. 
That even though there are times when we allow convenient religion, when we allow transactional religion, when we allow the animals to come in and the money changes to come in, that God comes and says, I want to clear it out. I love you too much. I love you too much for convenient religion. And God comes and says, you are the temple of the living God. That is so wonderful to me. I know that I am a complete failure. That I have made so many mistakes as a Christian. Those of you that are old enough to remember some of the sermons we sat under in this building, there was a Christian perfectionism that I felt I could never attain. I could never live up to this standard. And then I realized I wasn't supposed to. That God's grace was sufficient even for me. Even with all of my propensities. That God wants to come and fill my temple with His Spirit. And live in me. And then live through me with all of my brokenness. And all of my failure. This is so wonderful. Paul says, don't you know? Don't you understand that you are the temple of the living God? Amen? Amen. This, these buildings are nothing to God. He said, no, I've put my spirit in you. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Amen? Amen. That resurrection power. God said, I'm going to give you my spirit. I'm going to fill your temple. And you can live a life that you could never ordinarily live. This is so wonderful. That through the cross, the ultimate proof of his authority, Jesus died and rose again. And Paul said, he echoed the same thing, you are the temple of the living God. Amen. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. And you are that temple. I don't know how theologically you worked that out, but just embrace it. <laughs> You're the temple of a living God. That's how powerful the cross is. Amen. I don't know about you, but that is so encouraging to me. That, I, I mean, we're just ordinary people. We're not even Jewish, most of us. I don't know if there's anybody who's Jewish here, but I know I'm, I'm a Gentile. And God's grafted us in. So wonderful. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The second section teaches us that true worship must center around Christ. His death and resurrection and the new life he gives us. Now let's look at the third section. Section 3, verses 23 through 25. It says this, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now this is a very interesting play on words that the translation, the ESV, doesn't quite catch. But in verse 24, 
Or let's look at 23. It says, many believed on his name. Verse 24, Jesus on his part did not believe in them. That's literally what it means. So it, you could read it like this. Many believed on him, but he did not believe in them. Many trusted in him, but he did not trust himself to them. Many committed themselves to him, but he did not commit himself to them. He saw into their hearts because he knows all people. There's nothing hidden from the eyes of the Lord. That's, that's a terrifying thought, isn't it? There's no thought that we think. There's no word we speak that he doesn't know it before it pops out. That he sees and knows our inmost being and nothing is hidden from him. That, that's a terrifying thought, isn't it? But it's also a very encouraging thought. Because even though he fully, fully knows us, he fully, fully loves us. Isn't that so wonderful? That he knows our propensities. He knows the way that we, we stumble. And occasionally there are times we fall. God knows us intimately. And yet that intimate knowledge doesn't put him off. That is most wonderful, isn't it? Now, if we think about it, there was a man in that crowd. His name was Nicodemus. And you're going to get to this next week, chapter 3, so I don't want to dip into it two weeks from now. But there was a man that was watching, and he came to Jesus, and he said, I know that you can only do these signs if you are from God. Incredible. That there was a man... Even though Jesus didn't entrust himself to the crowd, there were people that Jesus did entrust himself to. And there were people who came to him with honest, open hearts. You know who the next person after Nicodemus Jesus reveals himself to? Is a Samaritan woman with five husbands. It's incredible, isn't it? The top religious leader comes to Jesus and then a Samaritan woman. Disgraced woman who the disciples were shocked that he was talking to her. So Jesus didn't entrust himself to the crowds, but he did entrust himself to those who came honestly and bared their hearts to him. And so this terrifying and yet reassuring thought that our hearts are completely exposed to God. He sees it all. So God knows if we're the religious hypocrite, if we're going through the motions if the temple of our heart is full of money changers and convenient religion, God sees that. He knows that. But God also sees the good, honest heart that comes to him with nothing hidden and says, Lord, here I am, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me and that you bid me come to thee. O Lamb of God, I come. The Lord sees it all, the mess of our hearts, and yet loves us. He sees the sin, the unforgiveness. I had to confess that this morning to the Lord. Lord, I've, I've got pride and selfishness and unforgiveness and love of the praise of men. And yet God comes and loves us in spite of our mess and offers us hope through joining with Christ in his death and resurrection. 
We are completely known and completely loved. So wonderful. This third section teaches us that Jesus knows whether or not our worship is authentic and true. And so as we wrap up uh, this brief meditation out of John chapter 2, I just want to ask that question again. What does this passage teach his disciples about true worship? It teaches us that God is seeking for authentic worshippers of his son Jesus. And I thought it'd be good to take a few moments. You know, whether you've been a Christian for many years, maybe somebody here isn't following Jesus. I don't know. But I, I just want to encourage you that Jesus is here this morning. I mean, he's been speaking to us from the beginning. And I was thinking as Sarah was sharing, you know, that there is a door, but he is also the door. It's a mystery, isn't it? And yet he knocks on our door and asks us if we'd open it and come in. But maybe this morning you could open the door of your temple and say, Lord Jesus, would you come in? And if there's anything there offensive to you, would you just move it out? Would you get rid of it? Any hindrances to love, any barriers, any pride, selfishness, self-seeking, unforgiveness. These, these are real things, aren't we? Can, we can fake it to each other. But nothing is hidden from the Lord. And in complete love, complete grace for all of our mistakes, all of our propensities, the Lord says, come, doesn't he? Come to me, all that are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. You know, we're never truly satisfied with our own sin, with our own religion. It never truly satisfies, does it, the depths of our being. And so I want to encourage you this morning. Why not open your heart? Maybe there's things that have long, long been there. Open your heart and let Jesus come in and fill the temple of your life once again.